Hey friends, this is Holly Goodman, and you're listening to Isaac's Autism Wild podcast, where we focus on topics related to raising loved ones touched by autism and its impact on relationships and family. I'll be sharing some of my personal parenting experiences, raising my son Isaac, who passed away in 2007, as well as an entirely different parenting experience as I now raise my son Caleb, who never ceases to blow my mind with his beautiful autism perspectives. So grab a drink and join me as I interview this week's group of exceptional autism parents. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Isaac's Autism Wild Podcast. I am really excited about today's episode. I have Desiree Kamika. Did I say that correctly? Awesome. With the Autism Housing Network. And um, Desiree, will you tell me where is, where are, I didn't even ask before we hit record, where are you actually, what state are you in? The Madison House Autism Foundation um, is the foundation in which the Autism Housing Network is a program. And it is located just outside of Washington, D.C. in Rockville, Maryland. Wow. I happen to live in Colorado um, in a little rural community called Elizabeth. Oh, that's cute. How very personal. Now, as we were talking beforehand, can you just talk a little bit about how the Madison House Autism Foundation began and then how the Autism Housing Network came about through that? The Madison House Autism Foundation was started by a mom, surprise, surprise, Jalyn Prince. And she had a son on the spectrum, Madison, um, who's approaching 30 now. And she was really concerned about his future. This was when he was transition age. And she wanted to create an organization that was going to focus on the issues of adults on the spectrum specifically. And I was uh, in turn for her. I was the first Madison House Autism Foundation intern working out of her little side office. And I remember her and her husband, Gregory Prince, saying, Desiree, I want you to to research what all the other organizations, autism organizations are doing, because we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We need to be able to fill gaps. And so as I started looking around, I realized that there wasn't a lot of people talking about housing, You know, what happens when mom and dad pass away? Where are individuals going to live, thrive, work, play? And that's when we decided that we were going to launch the Autism Housing Network and begin to consolidate some of the information that was somewhat scattered and disconnected all over the internet. You know, trying to create a one-stop shop of information and really the best ideas about housing for people with autism and other intellectual and developmental disabilities. And that's actually how I ended up meeting you. I went to a conference that was really dedicated to like, I think it might've even been called something like life after high school, because as everyone knows, um, or most people are, and I don't think it matters what state you're in, there just seems to be a huge like drop in services. It's like almost like falling off a cliff once you age out of, of school. And that can be, some are aging out at 18, some actually go to the age of 21, but it is shocking to me how, you know, services just completely dry up and go away once you have a, a loved one that then hits that transition age. So you were one of the speakers at this conference talking specifically about your autism housing network and all. And I was just floored. I, I will admit that your presentation on housing, a variety of different housing models really stuck with me and was really my takeaway. I can't even tell you who else was actually at the conference because I was so uh, relieved. I guess maybe it's a, it was kind of a combination, a culmination of feeling relieved that there was someone out there innovative enough to think that, Hey, we need a place 
to be able to bring all of this information together so it's easy to find. And um, you're so knowledgeable about housing. And really, if we're talking about the Autism Housing Network and what function it is, it's really like a delightful database of where you can go and find examples of different housing models. So the presentation that you gave here um, when I was when I was at the conference was you, I think maybe you picked three or four different housing models that were uniquely different and um, how the families or the groups of people decided about how they were going to tackle this issue of housing, unique, innovative ways of, of addressing housing. And it was just, I guess it was the first time it ever occurred to me that there were options other than putting your child in some sort of group home where they would have caregivers that would just come in and it would just be a revolving door of caregivers and, you know, and feeling very much like it's just a place to keep them for the rest of their life. Because, I mean, I said in this podcast numerous times that, you know, my goal is to try and live forever because, you know, my kids need me, but that is just not an option. And so that was, I guess, the first moment where I thought there, okay, so you're telling me there's a chance, there's a chance out there for better housing opportunities for our loved ones that have autism and other neurodiversities. As you mentioned, this isn't just, I mean, while the mission may have started out specific to autism, but this is much, much, much broader than just the autism population, correct? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And really this trend of like emerging housing opportunities, it's following on the footsteps of the trend in the typical population. Our country is realizing that our current housing stock is just not meeting the needs of people who are staying single longer or families that, you know, move from state to state, that there aren't people that are close together or seniors, right, that are now transitioning into retirement and their next um, downsizing home. So this trend of emerging options is really um, something that's happening with all populations, not just the neurodiverse population. And it's actually really exciting. Like one of the things that I like to do is to help families and individuals realize the potential of really good housing and how housing can impact your healthcare, how it can impact social relationships, you know, the ways in which you become integrated and part of your greater community. Housing is a core facet of the ways in which we can connect to those who are around us. And we don't need to be afraid that, oh my gosh, you know, I don't want to even think or plan about the future because it's just too overwhelming and I just don't know. I want to encourage everyone to really think about how can you use housing as kind of an anchor to really develop the lifespan options for your loved one or your or yourself if you're on the autism spectrum. Yeah. Well, and a lot, some of these models actually are, you know, more representative of, you know, just like a family purchasing a home. And some of those models are in that regard. Some of them are more pocket community oriented. And some of them, the other thing I thought was really cool in your presentation is the model that you gave as an example, I mean, among many was one where it was actually rural. It was actually a rural situation where it was kind of a little pocket community, but it was in a rural area that you wouldn't normally have thought of innovative housing options. And, and so that's where I think it really, we need to be challenging people to be thinking outside of the box and also not rule out what our preconceived ideas of of what's, you know, currently being done, because you can create these opportunities anywhere, whether you're living in a city um, that's very highly populated or whether or not you're in a very agricultural or rural area. I think there's multiple opportunities. 
Now, do you mind just kind of sharing some of you guys have a lot of statistics when it comes to this this population? Would you mind sharing some statistics when we're talking about housing? How does this look in terms of statistics and and opportunities out there for people that have autism and other neurodiversities? Right now, we know that most adults who have autism or other intellectual and developmental disabilities live in their family home. Actually, only about 7% of people with neurodiversities live outside of the family home and are supported with support services throughout their lifespan. And if we really think about it and we look at the statistics even closer, only 2% live in their own home, which means the other 5% are living in a different setting, like a group home or a host home or some other facility-based type of housing. And so really there's not a lot of opportunity and there's historic reasons for that. But what we have found is that when local communities approach their leaders and share, hey, people with autism need affordable housing. You know, can you help think about how can we change policy and funding to make sure that there's housing for this population because local leaders just don't think about someone with Down syndrome or cerebral palsy or autism as needing housing because historically that wasn't even on the table as an option. We're kind of in like this new phase of progression, right? In the disability rights movement in which people with disabilities need to be living in the community and with who they want to live with and in the neighborhoods they want to live with, which means we need to be able to access housing. You know, some of the other statistics that I think is really compelling um, are the statistics on loneliness. We know that the majority of individuals with autism consider themselves as being lonely and not having a lot of social connections. Isolation is a really big challenge. Another really big challenge, which is kind of scary to talk about, is abuse. Um, And that's, you know, everything from physical type of abuse to also abusive relationships. So there's been studies in the UK on mate crime, where people have made friends with someone on the autism spectrum in order to exploit them. And so if if an individual doesn't have a strong natural support system to be like, you know what, your new friend, I don't know about that new friend of yours, or I'm not sure about that new girlfriend of yours. Let's talk about the relationship. You know, it could be very easy for people to kind of fall into some into some situations, which is why, you know, one of the things when I talk to families is don't just think about like the housing, the actual bricks and mortar. Also think about that natural support system. You know, be intentional about building relationships in the community so that your loved one has friends, you know, people who aren't paid to take care of them only, but just someone who would be willing to be like, hey, yeah, let's go to, you know, let's go to a restaurant once a month and just let, let's hang, right? Let's go on a hike once a month. Um, just people in their lives that can kind of, you know, check on them and make yeah. sure everything's okay. Yeah. One of the interesting, I guess, options that I became aware of is that, and I, and I, I don't know exactly where these are existing. It's almost kind of, I hate to say, use this in terms of trying to describe it, but it's almost like, you know, we think of foster care when we take in children that are in need of home, but homes, but there's also a structure out there where there are young people out there that are willing to cohabitate. So it may be their home or their apartment and they have an extra room and they bring in a 
roommate that has a developmental or intellectual disability. And there's that, that natural support, you know, there's that understanding that this person is, maybe this is the first time they've lived independently. So they're going to need some, you know, structure and routine and maybe some nudging about, you know, responsibilities when we're roommates. And it becomes like, almost like, I hate to say it again, like a fostering situation, but it's like that first opportunity where, and it's a temporary thing. It's kind of that first step of like, you know, this is what it feels like to be independent, but there's those that natural support there too. Have you heard of that model? Actually, Holly, I was a host home. So a young man with autism lived with me and my husband for a while. Um, So we call that, there's actually two different ways in which you can describe this service delivery model. Um, the, The first way that you described is when a person without a disability invites someone with a disability to come and live and and live in their home and do life together. And that's what my husband and I did. And we were what's called considered a host home. So we were actually paid by Medicaid to support him and make sure, you know, he took his medication and went to doctor's appointments and we provided him with transportation. We helped him find a job, you know, helped connect him with a local faith community. He was welcome to come line dancing with me, although he often chose not to come line dancing with me. I don't know why. I was going to say, that's a shame. I found, that sounds fun. Let's do it. <laughs> but, you know, that that's one model. A very similar model is called um, shared living. And in shared living, the person with the disability might invite someone without a disability with a, without a disability to live with them. And so that's kind of the difference of who controls the home. So in the first model, it's called provider control because I as the provider was the host. I was the host home to my roommate. Whereas in a similar model is shared living where the person with a disability might be inviting someone to come and live in their home. So a family could invest in housing for their loved one with the intention that they will have someone without a disability living and supporting their loved one in the future. Now, I think that this is really important to talk about because I'll use my example, my my own personal life example. We loved having our roommate live with us and life happens, right? And my sister, my little sister went into crisis and she had to move in with us. She was still a minor at the time and we only had one extra bedroom, right? So then we had to ask our roommate with autism to leave. And because we live in a rural community, he couldn't find affordable housing and there were no other host home providers in our area. So he was forced to actually move about 15 miles down the road. It He almost lost his job. Luckily, we were able to fight to maintain his transportation so he could get to work. Okay. Um, and and. I mean, just being quite transparent, he's quite lonely and has actually gone into some mental health crisis because of the feeling of isolation he has. And so in the host home arrangement, it is a wonderful opportunity, but my concern at times is how stable is that opportunity? And life happens, right? Like my sister came to live with us. It's just what happens. And then he was put in a situation. And so whenever possible, I try to encourage families to start saving very early so that they could potentially secure housing for their loved one. This way, you never have to worry about, you know, someone not renewing a lease or, you know, some a life change of the host home, but you still get the benefit of that service delivery model of like someone living in the home with your loved one and, and just sharing life. 
That is actually a really interesting point. I think you're so right. One of the things that I kind of you know, was married, got divorced. I was very adamant that in, when I got divorced, I wanted to keep my home. And the reason why I wanted to keep my home is, is that when we built it, uh, the basement was, was designed in the event, one of our parents was going to have to live with us. So it was definitely a separate entrance, very, you know, compliant because you just don't know the needs of your elderly aging parents. And so when we got divorced, I was really adamant about trying to keep that house because, you know, with my son, Caleb, and knowing that there will potentially be challenges, just not knowing with him being so young, don't know what his ability will be to live independently. And just even knowing that even as high functioning and just real self-sufficient as he can potentially be, we know that employment, there's a lot of obstacles to owning a home and living independently. So I fought so hard to keep this, this house for that reason, because the downstairs is its own separate unit. It's got its own laundry room, kitchen, but it also has multiple rooms so that then if, you know, if I still choose to live upstairs and we, Caleb decides he wants to like, you know, like live, you know, downstairs, which is where his room is now. And he invites then people to live there with him again, that whole sense of community. Now we are a little rural. So then, you know, um, transportation becomes an issue, but I, I feel like I will deal with the transportation later. Once we get to that age range and there's a will, there's a way, you know, we can get creative. We have to get creative in all things. And I feel like we can um, overcome that obstacle as well. Um, and now they have some super cool options with electric bikes and different things like that. So I feel a lot more confident, but it's interesting because in the back of my mind, it has always just been there in my mind that we need housing opportunities. And I just didn't want that door to close by the fact that I would sell it. And so it's really interesting because, you know, that might be you know, I just think of an opportunity. So it's, you know, independence, but there's still some financial control over the home and just the cost of housing. I'm sure I don't have to tell you because you're in Colorado, the cost of housing is just absolutely unreal. And in fact, right now I'm putting in a pull, um, pull shop and I'm just thinking to myself, man, we should probably be thinking about like making sure that we create some living quarters in that space too, because anymore it's just, it's becoming harder and harder just even for a young couple or a young person to be able to afford housing. It just really scares me that the affordability of housing for individuals with disabilities is going to become even harder. Is that something that you guys are concerned with as well? Oh, definitely. There's not enough affordable housing for the neurotypical population, let alone, you know, the 5 million people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who are adults. You know, statistics are just showing that there needs to be a serious intervention. I will say I have so much hope and excitement for the future because the communities that I've worked with in which we've started to discuss housing for this population were very proactive in wanting to create and develop solutions and, and just recognize that this is a, a true need for this specific population. I would say, you know, for, for you and your situation, the housing that you create, that extra space, you could have a live-in roommate that gets paid to support your loved one, but you can also just rent it, right? And that becomes the income stream for the maintenance on the home. And maybe part of the rental agreement is that you provide transportation, you know, X amount of days a week, or, you know, you make sure that you do something fun once a week with my loved one, you know, so families, when they're, a lot of families say, well, Desiree, we can't buy a house for our loved one. I'm like, well, you currently live in a home. 
and that home could be sold. And you could buy a home that potentially has a mother-in-law suite, an accessory dwelling unit. You can add a tiny home. So really thinking about some of those long-term decisions with where you are right now in your, in your choices, in your housing choices. And I think you're so right. And, and here's, I guess, what I was hoping that this podcast will do for our parents that are listening or even grandparents that are listening is, is that sitting around and waiting for major, like large organizations to somehow acquire more housing to create group houses isn't necessarily the way of the future in my, in my observation. I think that all it takes is a group of parents, grandparents, even people depending on, you know, in the real estate market, if you are in real estate and you have a real passion for, you know, the issue of affordable housing, be thinking about connect with other fam, connect with organizations that work with families who have loved ones with autism and other disabilities and start having conversations about it. And this is where it ties back to the Autism Housing Network. Your website, and I understand you guys are going to be kind of going through some renovations because you want to make it more accessible. And, um, you know, again, we've talked about different terminology. Uh, and so your website has so much information, but it can be like drinking from a fire hose um, <laughs> because there's lots of different options out there, but really nothing is off of the table. I am working. I have a friend here in Spokane and um, she's really interested in looking at housing opportunities, affordable housing opportunities for individuals with autism and other disabilities. And she's really interested in the pocket communities. And one of the things that she says that just takes the wind out of her sails is every time she goes to the planning um, department or reaches out to, you know, different groups in city government, it's that, oh, well, you can't do that there. And so really, she says it's so deflating because she says, we're going to have to rally a group of people that really lobbies and pushes municipalities to create zoning exemptions or changes of zoning so that these types of housing opportunities are available. Pocket communities are, are all over the place and they're very successful and fun and exactly what you're talking about. It creates that sense of community and there's not the isolation that you might experience when it's just, you know, a person that's, you know, plunked down here in this apartment complex with no natural supports around them. And that's where, you know, she just is getting really frustrated because it's like some local governments have just not thought about our population and being thinking a little outside the box community pocket communities exist very popular even in the UK and they're very very successful and and the pushback that you get in some cities is just really unfortunate but from talking to you those conversations are important and they don't fall on deaf ears you know it's all to it's getting to the right people that then we can educate and get them passionate about creating housing for affordable housing for those that have autism and other um, neurodiversities. And so, you know, can you just maybe encourage people that are listening, that are thinking about this, that might just be a little sick to their stomach because it, it's not with all things, not everything is easy. It is going to take some work, but it is possible, right? Yeah, it's totally possible. I, I promise you that Holly all across the country, there are fam like just moms and dads who are like, we need to make something happen. And they go out and they just start sharing their vision. One of the things that we created most recently, just in October, we published a study 
called A Place in the World, Fueling Housing and Community Options for Adults with Autism and Other Neurodiversities. And part, and this is a, a housing guide. It's almost 200 pages, but there's a lot of pictures and graphics. And the purpose of developing this publication was really to help educate not just consumers and families, but also to really help educate local communities that look at how we can create this next generation of supportive housing opportunities. And the report actually features 12 different properties and how they were created and what they look like all across the country. Because I do think that every local community kind of has their own niche. So here in Colorado, we've been doing some market analysis where we're actually educating families and individuals and collecting data on what it is that they want. And then we're taking that data to the local leaders and say, hey, this is what people want. How are we going to make this happen for the future so that individuals aren't displaced from their community and they don't experience homelessness? Because I will tell you that that is happening. I was just with a focus group in the middle of Denver of individuals with autism, and other developmental disabilities who are currently experiencing homelessness. Oh, yes. So it is a very real risk. But it's not recognized because when you're living in your family home, you're technically housed. So I think for, you know, to kind of get inspiration and to get excited, you can go to the Autism Housing Network and look in our housing directory. And you can see all shapes and sizes and service delivery models of different emerging opportunities all across the country. But you can also download this free resource to be able to see, wow, you know, there really are ways in which people um, are creating solutions that are person-centered. One of the things that I really love to kind of share is instead of thinking about like a program that needs to be created to put someone in, you know, really think about being person-centered. What would work best for your son or daughter? Right. And how do we create the supports and the infrastructure to make their best life happen? Right. Being really person centered instead of thinking about, well, how do we create a perfect program? It's not about programs. It's about people. Yes. You need to be able to have them at the center and then build their entire support network and infrastructure around them. And housing is a key component of that. Well, and that in your presentation that you gave at that conference that I attended, you actually did talk about some of the things that were learned by the individuals that were creating some of these housing opportunities. And I think that that is so valuable because a lot of the aha moments actually came back to the being people centered. It needs to be person centered. And some of the mistakes that happened along the way was, is that they didn't have that right, that right, correct frame of mind initially when they began the process. And so that created some stumbling blocks. And so I really appreciate it. I have to be honest at the Isaac foundation. I, I, I joke that that, um, you know, I, I wasn't, this isn't something that I came into by um, education or, you know, like how I was raised. It was because I was a passionate mom, but I had zero experience. And so a lot of the most valuable things that I learned along the way was like the hiccups, what I learned, so, you know, you, know, you, you, you know, develop a plan and then you learn so much from that and you take those lessons to then, and every single time I've learned a lesson, it's all becoming more person-centered. We have to always think about what is 
services, the needs of the person with the disability. And then of course, also the families, the families are a big piece of this component as well. And so I think that you're not going to get too far off track if you're always looking at what's in the best interest and how can we make fulfilling life and, you know, create services and programs that, you know, just add to the quality of life. And so I think that's really important. The thing also about your, uh, your guide is the glossary. I love this so much um, because there is so much different terminology. Just, we had a perfect example, the host home versus the shared living, different terminology, but totally different concepts, um, you know, but yet probably interchangeably, depending on where you are in the United States. And so I'm sure that when I talk about pocket communities, that might have a totally different connotation depending on where you are and what your exposure is to that. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of the glossary? Yeah, absolutely. You know, in order for us to be able to talk about what we want, we have to use the same language. And so we partnered with Arizona State University, um, Morrison Center for Public Policy, as well as the First Place Global Leadership Institute and a lot of other leaders across the country, the Urban Land Institute, um, the National Association of Home Builders, a lot of autism organizations and other other major service providers to be able to take, I mean, it took three years of think tanks and surveys and coming back to think tanks and getting feedback and creating drafts in order to develop this nomenclature. And what it does is it just gives people the terms and the definitions to describe who they are, what they want, and how they want to receive services. So for example, we really felt like it was important to talk about the level of support that people need. You know, we use, we could use terms like high functioning and low functioning, but what does that really mean? So in this glossary, we actually define different levels of support so that when you're talking to a service provider, you can say something like, my son has moderate support needs. And that is defined different to someone who needs drop-in supports or 24-7 supports or medical supports. And so it gives families the opportunity to really articulate who it is that we're talking about creating solutions for, as well as what are the solutions you want. So it defines things like provider controlled versus consumer controlled. It defines different development types, planned communities, mixed use communities, scattered site communities, co-housing communities, um, so that we can start to speak the same language as well as do research, right? Because we need to be measuring outcomes and understand how different housing opportunities and different service delivery models and different supportive or physical amenities impact the lives of individuals with neurodiversity diversities. Yeah, that's so true. So um, again, I, you know, I, your, your net is cast very wide. I would say mine is too in the sector of the world. However, I wouldn't say by any stretch that I am a housing expert, which is why I always seem to try and refer those individuals that are really excited and feel called to try and create some affordable housing opportunities for those that are neurodiverse. And so my question is, is that if you're a person that is thinking, Hmm, you know what? I feel like I I need to really start thinking about this. Like what are good first steps that you would give as like kind of like pointers in terms of getting started? 
um, in terms of getting started and looking a solution for an individual or getting started and looking for a solution for lots of people? Like, are you looking say, at an emerging project or a specific individual? I would say that start with those that are trying to create um, more opportunities for multiple people because they have the financial means or the connections to be able to make a bigger impact. And so what would you suggest to like those people in a place to start? I would say you first need to know what's happening out there in the country. So definitely look at the A Place in the World Housing Guide and the Autism Housing Network and start making notes about what are the things you like and don't like about the different options that already exist. And then I would say the next thing is for you to write down on paper a vision, you know, articulate it, write it down, and then that can start to be defined. Once you, as it say, Holly, you define your vision, then start to bring some people around you and see if they share that same vision and commit to meeting once a month on Zoom, at a coffee shop, whatever, just commit once a month. Okay, here's our vision. Where can we go next? What can be our next step? And even if you don't know what the agenda for that month is gonna be, just come together because when people start to come together, you know, the pieces start to fall into place. Now, I will say that something that the Autism Housing Network does that isn't reflected necessarily on the website right now is I provide consultations every single day to individuals and emerging communities where I help them not reinvent the wheel um, and try to get them to their endpoint faster and maybe save some money along the way as well and connect them with others that would that would help. So I do that already every single day is try to help these local emerging projects um, get further along the path to completion. I so would by all means, reach out. And, and maybe if deep down, I was hoping you were going to say that because I do feel like <laughs> people know that there's like an expert out there that does consultations. I think it really is I think you go into it not as afraid because you know that there's an expert out there that will give you time to help direct you. The other thing I would say too is for those people, you know, even if you just Google online a business plan, a generic business plan, and use that as your group's kind of just working document, you would be surprised. That's all the information that literally you're going to have to have along the way. Some of the stuff you won't, you know, the very, you know, executive summary. Hey, you don't have to have an executive summary. Write that at the very end after you've been meeting for 12 months. But there's a lot of th sections in there that you, you know, can start, it gets you thinking about all the things that you can contemplate when it comes to your project. So I think that, again, you can just Google a good old generic business plan. And it has a lot of those little sections that, you know, if you're struggling to figure out, okay, we're going to meet, but what, what is our topic going to be? Pick one of the sections and just start talking about it and just kind of see what comes from there. So now let's talk about we have a family that knows that, you know what, I don't love kind of this group home option that's available through some of the organizations that you know, might have housing opportunities in my area. Um, I really want to focus on a, a person-centered plan for my child. And so what would be the starting point for that? Like, for instance, my son, um, Caleb, I, again, I have a footprint in my home. I know what his needs will be. 
as he gets older, I'm fine tuning kind of what that level of support he's going to need. Um, so just using me as an example, like what would be your advice for a family like me at what point? I mean, Caleb is going to be in the eighth grade. And I feel like now is really the time I need to be dedicating to what is this going to look like? Because these things don't happen overnight. Am I wrong? Am I too early or am I not right too now? early? It's okay. never too early. You use those IEP dollars yes, uh, for right. really thinking about what are the life skills he's going to need um, for his future. So I would say, no, you are not too early, Holly. That is fantastic. Um, I would say, one, immediately start thinking about life skills and how you can develop relationships in the community. So that's just very basic. I would say another thing that families need to do is talk to a special needs financial planner. Um, And that not just any financial planner, it has to be a special needs financial planner and start um, asking them questions about if I wanted to bequeath my home, give my home to my loved one, what does that look like? Or if I wanted to buy another home for my loved one in the in the future, how much can I start putting in an ABLE account to, to, you know, or a down payment. Award. So you, you can start to have those type of financial conversations. On the practical side of things, Holly, you should be looking at your service providers. So the people who are going to be supporting your son every day, that is going to have a major impact on his quality of life. And so it's time for you to start looking at, well, who are the service providers in our area, right? What are their values? What are they doing? How do they talk and relate to people with autism, you know, and start to identify which are the good ones because you're going to kind of weed out like, you know what, that's really not our tribe. This is really more of who we are and where we're going. Um, So I would say to start to identify service providers as well. And I I do want to underscore group homes have a bad rap. um, But I have been to some really fantastic group homes. And so don't just, you know, throw the baby out with bathwater. I, I would agree. say continue to look at the service provision. That this the home is one aspect, but the way in which your son is going to be supported, you know, who's going to make sure he has his breakfast and, you know, is living the life that he wants to live, that direct support. The service provider is a key element. On top of that, another little thing you could consider is begin using technology to help your son self-direct as much as possible. Smart home technology um, is advancing every single day. And by the time your son is 18, we're going to be in a whole different stratosphere. But there are a lot of ways in which technology can help people with autism Um, direct their own lives and not always have to be told what to do, right? Like they might need the prompting, but you know, having mom prompt me all day long gets really annoying. Whereas like if Batman was prompting me all day long, not so bad. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. I have to tell you a funny story is I invested in a, um, a get like a watch that was basically for prompting him to do things. So I had to, on my computer, on my, you know, smart device, I had to kind of program it. And I just sat back and I watched it because again, same thing that you're saying is, is that, um, Kayla's best friend is his dog sticks. And so the thing is he forgets that sticks has to go outside. And so then again, he forgets the needs, you know, because again, you know, unless sticks had a 
voice that says, hey, Caleb, I have to pee. You know, he just gets into his own world and he's not tuned into as much as he loves sticks. He's not tuned into it. So I set it up so that it would vibrate. And then it would say, you know, this is sticks. I need to go to the bathroom. And then he would be like, oh, sorry, buddy. And then he would get up and he would take him outside. And I was just like, oh my gosh, it's working. It's totally working. So when you talk about smart homes, I a hundred percent agree with that. And one of the models that you actually, as an example that you gave was you actually had shown some examples of these smart home technology. And again, I can only imagine in the couple of years since it's been, since I uh, was attending one of your conferences, it's probably grown exponentially. So I was really impressed by that, which was what planted that seed in my mind. Like, Hmm, I wonder if this would work. And it 100% did because I had it sound as though it was sticks talking to him on his watch. And it was just like genius, but so smart, so smart, Holly. Good work. Yeah. So thank you for just validating me as a mom when I was tricking him with the watch, but <laughs> so really actually for all families, you know, really the early you can start working with a special needs financial planner, the better, because, you know, at eighth grade, I don't have many more years where I can, you know, be saving and planning accordingly, you know, putting the house in a trust or something like that, you know, might be an option that a financial planner could help you navigate. And then working with an attorney to do all of those things would be, you know, you can never start too early. And then, of course, going to your website, explain how your, your website is going to be changing in the, in the weeks to come. Cause you said that you guys Ooh, are going I'm through. I'm so excited. Yeah. Yes. So, so we're actually going to, we have some ideas based on analytics, right. Of how we want to improve our website, but we're also going to be releasing a survey so we can get direct feedback from individuals. Some of the things that we plan on doing are having different series. So we're working right now with a, a company called Planning Across the Spectrum. And this was a financial planning company that was developed by an adult on the autism spectrum who is really good at what he does. And so we're going to have a whole series of videos, just quick snippets that are talking about future and financial planning. And then we're going to have another series, hopefully, that has adults on the autism spectrum who are architectural designers to start talking about how you can change the environment to be more sensory friendly, um, coming from the perspective of adults on the spectrum. So we're excited about kind of these different video series that we're going to start to put together. And then one of the other things that we're we're really excited about is um, creating some digital downloads. Um, so for you know a very small fee, just so that we can cover our costs, we are going to be creating um, some state uh, some um, state toolkits. So state specific toolkit that basically has all of the different disconnected programs on one piece of paper. And this is where you go to get this, and you can actually check mark. Okay, we've explored this. We put the application there. You know, so it, it kind of lays out what's needed for that person-centered plan and where are some of the resources you can go to get those things. So some digital downloads is some of the other stuff that we're excited about putting together as well. Oh, so, yeah. That sounds actually really exciting. I wish it was available right now because I would absolutely like sign up and pay money for if you <laughs> save me time and help me navigate it based off of the fact that you know that I'm in Washington state and that's going to save me time. And it's like a little checklist. It's going to help me. It's worth paying some money to get my hands on that. So that's wonderful. Well, Desiree, I can't thank you enough for being willing to come on my podcast and talk about housing. Like I said, this is just, I, I'm not an expert and 
And over the years after I, you know, listened to you at the conference, I've always sent people to your website. So it was lovely that you joined us. Also, it's nice to know that you will help navigate people and direct people along the way should they need help. Because I think, again, my whole hope was to hopefully encourage parents and just people in our community that might be interested in these conversations about creating affordable housing for individuals that have neurodiversity is anyone can start the process. Anyone can make a change. It just takes taking that first step and, you know, having you guys there as an organization that people can reach out to is wonderful. I can't tell you how much I value and just know that there's a resource for that. So thank you for joining me. And we're going to go ahead and put your contact information in the show notes and we'll link some things back to your website. So people can find and understand while you're listening to this, that the website changes that we're talking about have not yet gone into effect. So be patient. And then, yeah. Is there anything else, any final thoughts or things that I missed that you wanted to mention before we wrap up? Be excited about the potential of the future and don't be afraid to share your concerns with local leaders because more often than not, they just had no idea that this was a population that needs housing and needs to be better included in community. It's almost as if it's an invisible population that we need to start to make visible. And what I have found is sometimes when you go to your planning commission and talk about adults on the autism spectrum, someone on the planning commission might also be a mom or a dad of someone on the spectrum and hasn't even considered how their role could impact the local community development. So be bold, be excited, um, and know that miracles happen all the time. And people are brought together in the ways in which they're supposed to be brought together. You just have to kind of, you know, have that faith that that it's going to work out and, and continue to take steps towards the future. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again for joining. And with that, I will go ahead and wrap up this episode of Isaac's Autism in the Wild. And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe. And just remember, we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.